Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to Alamo City Limits Podcast with Noah McGarrow-George, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of Pounding the Rock in SB Nation. What's going on, San Antonio Spurs fans? Welcome back to Alamo City Limits, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of SB Nation and Pounding the Rock. As always, I'm your host, Noah McGarrow-George, and today I am joined by my brand new co-host, the one and only Damian Bartonic. Man, how's it feel to know that we are officially partners in crime on this pod? Man, it feels great, man. You know me, big wrestling fan, so I'm all excited for the tag team action, man. <laughs> I think we're going to go hard. I think all the Spurs fans are going to enjoy it. And if y'all don't enjoy it, I'm sorry. Y'all going to have to hear a lot more from me, so it is what it is. But thanks for having me, brother, and uh, I'm excited to hop on this thing, bro. Man, I'm excited, too. I think we're going to have a good episode today. I always have a lot of fun with you, and we got a lot of stuff to talk about. So just so our listeners know, we are recording this podcast on Thursday, January 20th at about 1 p.m. Central Time. We have a full plate of topics to get through today, so let's go ahead and jump right into it, taking a look at San Antonio Slate since the last time we recorded. They went 2-3 and three against the Rockets, Cavs, Clippers, Suns, and Thunder as they finally saw everyone return from health and safety protocols. Let's go ahead and start with their most recent game against the Oklahoma City Thunder on Wednesday night. You were there, so... Tell me some of the things you saw. You were, like, real close. I saw some of those <laughs> things on social media. You were real close. So let me know what you saw at that game. Yeah, so I think one of the things that really kind of stuck out to me is I'll I'll just start with one player. I'm not going to talk about DeJounte yet. I think I'll save that one for last. <laughs> but the first one, Devin Vassell looked amazing last or on Wednesday night. Uh, I think that was one of his best performances, especially recently. I know he's kind of been struggling a little bit uh, shooting this month just from the floor. But from three, he's found his stroke again. He's shooting 38% in the month of January from deep. Back in December, he was only at 25%. So overall, I think last night was one of his best games. I mean, he looked fantastic on both ends, very active, put the ball on the floor a couple of times. I was really impressed with how he looked last night for sure. I think another thing, too, Jakob Pertl was stellar. Uh, he set the stat sheet with uh, 13 points, 8 rebounds, 4 assists, 4 blocks, held opponents to 4 of 18 from the field, and you saw that. You know, Even I, even though I have the numbers right in front of me, you saw his impact last night. It, it transcended the stat sheet. I mean, I put on Twitter, and I was mentioning, I was texting you as well about OKC needs a big man. They need. I, th- I don't think there's an, a team in the NBA that needs one more than the Oklahoma City Thunder, and Pertl took advantage of that, and he proved that. Because he he looked fantastic last night, even with 13 points and eight rebounds, he was he looked like one of the best players out there. I mean, he looked fantastic. He took advantage of that, and uh, I think he looked great. So I think the kind of the two big takeaways I have is just Vassell looked awesome. Uh, I think this is a huge step in the right direction. Hopefully, this means that these performances keep coming, and eventually he's going to be in that starting lineup full time. Uh, and then for Jakob Pertl, man, good great game. Uh, especially after that that zero point performance against Cleveland, now you know a couple games after he's kind of really put together some strong performances as well. So 
I think uh, Wednesday was they took care of business against a bad team, and I don't think you can be uh, upset upset with how they performed. Yeah, it's sort of one of those situations where it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? You lose to the Thunder, and, and your fans are like, oh, man, you lost to this team. They're awful. And you beat them, and some people will be like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. It is what they're supposed to do. I mean, they're clearly better than the Thunder. The Thunder without Derek Favors. Mike Muscala was out there at center. Darius Baisley played center at times. So Yaka Pertle did an excellent job out there. One of the things that I did want to throw in here is sort of his numbers since the last time we recorded. So that game, obviously, it started with that Houston loss, and we'll get into that loss later. But from the Houston game up until last night against the Thunder, Yaka Pertle has held opponents to 30 of 76 from the field. That's good for a 39.5% defensive field goal percentage. And we're going to play a little game right now. Over that period, how many players or elite rim protectors would you say that he is better than over this stretch? Probably all of them. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're pretty You're pretty <laughs> close. Yeah, he has, he has the second best defensive field goal percentage of any center in the league who qualifies for the leaderboard over the span. He was better than Joel Embiid. He was better than Jared Allen, better than Jaron Jackson, Mo Bamba, Evan Mobley, Rudy Gobert, oh, wow. uh, even even Jock Landell, who who made the leaderboard. So shout out to Jock yeah, Landell. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> man, he was so good. He was so, so good over the stretch. And I think even though the Thunder, you know, they're not a very good team, one of the things that really impressed me with Pirtle was the fact that he made a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who one of the best rim finishers in the NBA, leads the NBA in drives per game, 24 drives per game, three more than anyone in the league not named Luka Doncic. He made him look uncomfortable at the rim. He altered shots. He swatted shots. So shout out to Yaka Pirtle. Really good. But let's go ahead and move on to the star of the show. And he has been the star of the show for San Antonio all season long. I think he's given us a lot to maybe change our perception of him throughout the season. It's sort of been a slow burn for me. I think it's maybe been a little bit of a slow burn for you too, but DeJounte Murray, let's talk about him. So what did you see from DeJounte last night? And I'll tell you what I saw, but I want to get your opinion first on his performance against the Thunder. Yeah, I would definitely say it's been a slow burn or a slow cook, however you want to describe it. (laughs) It's not a brisket. It's not an eight-hour cook, but it's some ribs. It's been about four hours. And uh, I'll tell you like this, man. So last podcast, we were talking about like the improvements in his game, right? And I mentioned like the pocket pass, like kind of his pick and roll playmaking ability. A couple seasons ago, it was pretty raw. Last night, the between the legs dime to Drew Eubanks, that was not in the bag a couple of years ago. And I know it's a lot of flash, and I know that's you know a lot of people want oh they want him to pass uh, players open and this that, and the third, and I get that, I agree with that. But something like that shows me, and it tells me that not only is he playing with confidence as a playmaker. He's obviously the ability has 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 improved. I mean his his impact, his passing ability has improved, and there's still a lot of room for him to grow there. And I think that was one thing that I that really stood out to me, just how much confidence he's playing with, how much he's improved, how much he's dedicated to his craft. And man, after performance last night, there's there's one more topic we're gonna get to in this game that's gonna be really interesting. <laughs> but yeah, man, credit to DeJounte Murray. I wouldn't say, you know, he's Quote, like everyone likes throwing out words, oh my God, all-star, all-NBA, blah, blah. But I know he's definitely an all-star uh, all-star consideration for sure. And uh, with performances like these, man, it really you know makes you wonder how, how much better can this guy get. And we talked about Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Obviously, there's the Luka Doncic's of the world, the Trey Young's of the world. Guys who are so poised, you can't speed them up. doesn't matter if you throw you know one, two defenders, your best defender at them. 
and slowly but surely, it kind of feels like DeJounte is getting there, especially last night. You know, take it with a grain of salt. It was a bad team. They threw Lou Dort, who's a pretty good defender. I think he probably last year was deserving of All-NBA defense. This year, maybe not so much, but they had some good long defenders out there between him and Shea. And DeJounte just, you know, did everything at his own pace. He took him to the paint, was patient, knocked down floaters with a hand in his face, knocked down mid-range jumpers with a hand in his face. He even had a pull-up three that was really huge for the Spurs, you know, heading near halftime. So just really good stuff from DeJounte. And one of the things, I think I sent you a text earlier this week, or maybe it was even yesterday. B-Ball Index has a passing creation volume and passing creation quality graph. And you look at the volume, DeJounte Murray is about as far right as you can go. But his quality was down there with guys who don't even play point guard. And so to me, you know, one of the, one of the things we've been talking about all season is like, okay, he, he is passing to guys and he's getting guys the ball, but he's not really passing them open. He's not really necessarily putting them in a position for easy buckets. Like those floaters that Jakob Pertl gets, that's a tough shot. Jakob is just elite at that. You know, he also hits guys from one pass away, just makes the basic reads. But last night, for me, that pass that he made between his legs when he was playing with full confidence like that, that is sort of the next progression for him. You know, being creative, passing guys op open, manipulating the defense with your eyes, being able to read things and set guys up in a way that, you know, your run-of-the-mill point guard doesn't do. And so for me, I don't know if this is going to be a thing we see every game. Maybe he was just really feeling himself that game, and that's fine. But for me, this is the next step in the progression for DeJounte Murray. And if he can reach this consistently, he becomes so more valuable. So let's go ahead and hit the last topic for this game. So earlier in the season, you and I both said it, and, and I'll eat crow to a certain degree, and I'm sure you'll have to too, that you know we're, we're taking De'Aaron Fox, we're taking Darius Garland, we're taking De uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander over DeJounte. Is it time to say that not only is he on their level, but he maybe has separated himself as one of the best young guards on the brink of all-stardom in the NBA. When he's playing at that level, at his peak like that, if that was peak DeJounte Murray, man, he's definitely, I think he's surpassed De'Aaron Fox. And I, I don't know if you can kind of discredit me, but I think if SGA has a little bit better team, I think he kind of does the, same, the things offensive that DeJounte does. But if you're going to take DeJounte over both of them, uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't you know think that's nonsense. I actually think Dejounte's improved a lot, and it's for good reason. I mean, if you're gonna you know take away from that and say, hey, DJ's my guy out of out of De'Aaron, SGA, Garland, whomever, and D, you know this is my guy, DJ's my guy. I don't think he can be upset with that. I mean, the two way ability, we know what he can do defensively. We haven't even mentioned that. The whole thing that we've been mentioning is the offensive part because that was the part where he was most raw. I've made the the analogy that hey. He he was the Trey Lance of the NBA coming in, you know, coming in <laughs> as raw as you can get, as raw as you can imagine on the offensive end, right? But man, he's grown so much, and like like I mentioned earlier, there, there's a trajectory going on here, especially offensively. So if he's continuing to improve, and this is kind of the start of something, oh yeah, I could definitely say that he's that he's separated himself. Right now, I'm not going to go that far in terms of him and SGA, but in terms of him and like De'Aaron Fox, no, I think Dejounte's clearly the better player in my opinion. Uh, I would love to see SGA with with just a little bit better talent to ha kind of have a better, a, a, a much more fair assessment. But yeah, DJ's looked fantastic this year, and he's definitely one of the best young guards in the NBA. Yeah, and actually, the Thunder last year they were almost at 500 before they kind of shut down SGA for the rest of the season. And from that point on, I think they only won three games. So I still think that SGA is probably in the same tier as Dejounte, but a little bit above him. Because let's be honest, what he has to work with there 
it's not good. Like he's playing with guys like Darius Baisley, who obviously they've made strides since their rookie season, but they came in like two years away from being two years away, and now they're two years away. Like they're still yeah. not very good. Um, even guys like Alexi Pokashevsky, we didn't see him last night, but we did see guys like Aaron Wiggins. We saw a guy, uh, Diakite, who previously in this season was not part of an NBA roster. They had to sign him to bolster that front court depth. There was nothing he could do. That's not his fault, but SGA is playing with some guys who just probably don't belong in the NBA. So I'd still give the edge to SGA, but let's go ahead and move things along. So we've got the Suns game that happened right before this one. Spurs hung tight with them for about three quarters. Then CP3 and crew, you know, they showed their championship pedigree. They blew San Antonio out of the water in the final frame. What kept the Spurs in the game for so long? And, and like, what were some of the significant factors that allowed Phoenix to separate themselves during the second half? Uh, the biggest significant factor for Phoenix to separate themselves or to get back in this game and, and really just take it over was one Bismack Biombo. That's right, Bismack <laughs> Biombo. I said that. I don't know what, what got into this man, but what was it? Eight offensive boards? Yeah, it's just insane. The dude played his tail off, and he was, in my opinion, the biggest reason why Phoenix was in that ball game. And then you know, down the stretch, Chris Paul. Uh, I made the joke to you. Why when I saw Chris Paul uh, get the switch, get Yaka Pirtle on him, do a couple cross cross? I was like, yeah, it's gonna, it's time to get ready to do the podcast, Noah. Like it's already it, it's <laughs> the game's over, man. Night night. But no, in all seriousness, though, Biombo looked fantastic. He was you know one of the biggest reasons why they were able to separate themselves and get back into that game. Chris Paul took it over, and of course, throughout that entire game, even though they were down twelve at a, at, at one point, that was Phoenix. Devin Booker. I mean. Devin Booker, Devin Booker, Devin Booker. What, what can I say that already hasn't been said, man? I mean, just a sensational scoring player. Offensively, he's he's you know one of the best in the game. And I don't know. I I think I think players like that, you just got to give them props and just say, hey, you know, good game. You know, it, you you had it tonight. You had our number. And uh, I think Devin Booker was was sensational. But in terms of what what you know for the Spurs. They just played really, really, really tough on both ends. I felt until you know the the final frame in, in the fourth quarter defensively, I thought they were really good. Outside of you know Devin Booker going crazy, I felt like they played really strong. Yakupertu had a good game, but yeah, I just think overall they played them tough until you know the talent, the kind of talent, kind of the dropped off as we saw. They have guys like Devin Booker and Chris Paul down the stretch to close things out, and the Spurs unfortunately don't have a Chris Paul or Devin Booker right now. So uh, that's what kind of those were my takeaways from that game and. Uh, Man, it was a good one. It was close. But Bismack Biombo, man, who had that on their bingo card, right? Like, who who thought that was going to happen? I know the backup to the backup, right? Like, he was only playing because DeAndre Aiden wasn't healthy. He comes in, had been fine for them, I think. You know, as a role man, he had been fine as a rim protector to a certain degree. But there was a reason he wasn't in the NBA a few weeks ago, right? He was sitting on his couch waiting for a call. He got the call, the 10-day contract. He proved himself. They made it a full contract for the rest of the season. And then he came out 17-14, eight offensive rebounds. Seven of those were in the third quarter when the Spurs were up 12. And that, for me, that was the turning point. Once you let them back into the game, there was no doubt Chris Paul, Devin Booker wouldn't close things out. And, and the thing that was really impressive to me from Devin Booker, and I know this is a Spurs podcast, so we won't spend too much longer talking about Devin Booker, but, man, he went 34-4 and on the Pistons less than 24 hours before this game. And he came back out and said, oh, no, I'm not done. I'm going to keep eating. And he ate all over the Spurs. He just put whatever he wanted in the basket. Whether it was a three-pointer off the dribble, whether it was a catch-and-shoot three-pointer, whether it was mid-range jumper off the bounce, getting to the rim, getting to the free-throw line. Like, he had his way. And, and what was most impressive, really, not just the fact that it came 24 hours after that previous game against the Pistons, but that he did it against DeJounte and Derrick, 
because a lot of people have said, hey, you know, this is one of the best defensive backcourts. It didn't look like it. It sure didn't look like it with Booker. <laughs> and that's the thing that is so special with guys who are that good. They make other guys who are really good on the other end look like chumps. So, man, kudos to Devin Booker. Tough game for the Spurs, but... Man, it, <laughs> I cannot stop thinking about that performance. It was it was one of those things that you're like, man, I wish we had that kind of player on this team. Yeah, I, I don't and, – and, like, it's just so interesting, so fun to just, just talk about players. Like, we've mentioned it before on the podcast previous to this one. There's just so many good guards in the NBA right now, man. I mean, every single night – and I know it's Spurs podcast, and, you know, DeJounte DeJounte's a part <laughs> of that too, right? He's a really good guard as well. But when it comes to just, like I say, put the orange thing in the orange thing, man. Guys like Devin Booker, I mean, how can you not enjoy that as a Hoops fan, just watching someone, even though it's against your own team, you're like, you just got to scratch your head and be like, man, he just got it tonight, man. I don't know what else to say, you know? I'm not going to lie. I, like, almost was rooting for him to get 50 <laughs> just because it's a nice round number. I'm like, the Spurs are already losing. I love me some Devin Booker. Go get you 50. You know, Monty Williams pulled him out after he missed two shots. You know, that's fair. You don't want him to get injured. But, man... That was a good game. The only thing that I can really say was not so much of a good part of this game was you look at Devin, Lonnie, Kieda, and Landale. They combined for 22 points off the bench. That on itself is pretty unacceptable, but the fact that they shot 8 of 28, I think that's what also did the Spurs in. You know, DeJounte did his part. Derek did his part. Jakob did his part. But if you're going to have all those guys off the bench and, and they're not going to shoot well and they're not going to score and they're not going to play that great of defense really outside of, De uh, of Devin Vassell, I mean, you're going to lose that game. You're playing a team that went to the to the NBA Finals, and they took the Bucks, you know, pretty much the distance there. So you were going to lose that game if those guys don't show up, and they didn't show up. Yeah, and and it's I was just talking about Devin Vassell, right? We were just I was just talking, you know, heaping praise on him, but yeah, even in that game, Devin, Lonnie, Keita, you know, Jock, if the Spurs are going to be looking to be that you know playing team or you know fringe playoff team, whatever the case you want to call it. They're going to need guys like their bench to really kind of – it's been the strength of San Antonio's, you know, teams for years, right? The bench unit was always – that second unit for San Antonio, whether it was with Manu or whomever, would always just t just tear teams apart. And for the Spurs, it's even kind of like a team like this. They're going to need those guys. So, yeah, I think that's one takeaway too from San Antonio from this game is just that, man, that bench unit, it was, it was a rough night. It was rough sledding for them, but – Thankfully, that whatever happened in OKC all, or against OKC on Wednesday, it seems like it didn't carry over. So, yeah, that's what I got to say about that. Well, let's go ahead and move on. We'll talk about the Clippers game where San Antonio finally snapped that five-game losing streak. And look, I'm happy that they were able to eke out their first victory of their extended homestand here that they started against the Rockets. But I didn't really feel like this was a win that you write home about, right? I mean, it wasn't that impressive. And I'm not trying to pile onto these guys and. I don't want to want to say that it wasn't like good that they got a win. It's good that they got a win. There were definitely positives. There were negatives. So good or bad, what stood out to you about the Silver and Black as they hosted the Clippers on Saturday night? So here's a mix of good and bad in one little sentence here. They, so the Spurs gave up 22 offensive boards and 22 second chance points. That's bad. They let them hang around despite the Clippers shooting 38% on the night. If, if a team shoots 38% in the NBA – I would. I don't know whomever that that team's holding them to is probably going to win, right? And you're just like, man, it was it was way too close for comfort. Uh, I was shocked that they, you know they blew that 16 point lead, and uh, you know the Clippers ended up retaking that lead in the fourth quarter as well. I mean, although Derek and Dejounte really played well down the stretch, man, it was kind of like that was the season. That was the, the a game that like kind of like just described the entire year for the Spurs. Some really high highs, some really uh, some really low lows, but they actually closed it out when it when it came down to it, which is which is impressive. It's nice because they've kind of had they've kind of struggled with that, but at the same token, like you mentioned, 
There's no Kawhi. There's no Paul George. There's no Luke Kennard. No Justice Winslow. Like you mentioned earlier, damned if you, damned if you don't. They better have closed that game out, and they did, which is a good thing. But at the same time, you can't get too high or too low after that performance, man. You really can't. So I think personally that's kind of what I took from it is there was so much good, right? But it's like, oh, my goodness, the bad is just like it was still there. Like even when you're you're ahead, it's just you you never know. You know, it's it's you expected something to happen. And, you know, luckily for them, it didn't. Absolutely. And, and one of the one of the other points that I'd like to hit on is, yeah, DeJounte and Derek were good. Right. They had 14 points in that fourth quarter. They saved the Spurs down the stretch. Do you know how many points the Spurs scored that quarter in total? I'm sure. It's, what was it? 14, 16, something like that. It was yeah. <laughs> 16. So they had 14 of your 16 points. And thank God for Derek White and DeJounte Murray carrying you there. Because otherwise you would have picked up another loss that I would have categorized in that same category as the Hornets loss, as the loss earlier in the season to the Thunder, the loss to the Kings. Like That's one of those losses that I try not to use the word unacceptable too much, but it would have been an unacceptable loss. Like, there's no reason you should have lost that. Thankfully, Derek and DeJounte show up. There's really not too much else to say about this game. You know, it was not super important to the schedule. It wasn't against a very good team. The Spurs closed it out in the end, so that's good. But we also should just keep things moving along. I mean, it's not that important of a game in the grand scheme of things. So San Antonio also had to face the surging Cavs on the first night of a back-to-back. They dropped that one. It was relatively close throughout the entire game, and, and I think they gave us a really entertaining duel between two of the best young point guards in the league. DeJounte Murray, he goes for 30-14-8. Darius Garland on the other end goes for 32-4-8. And they traded buckets back and forth all game. Man, what was your favorite part of that head-to-head battle between those two guys? And I know we've already talked about, like, who would you take? But, I mean, who would you take if you're trying to build a team for the next decade? Because I think that's an argument. Those are two really fantastic young players. So I am so, like, to a fault, like, offensive-minded with so much stuff when it comes to basketball, man. And when it comes to just purity of your offensive game, man, Darius Garland, I just have to lean Darius Garland because as just a playmaker, as a scorer, He's just so just polished, man. It's like like we mentioned, um, you know, my favorite part of the head-to-head battle was late in that fourth, right? Darius Garland, doesn't matter. Get the screen, the Spurs playing drop coverage, mid-range, float. Oh, the, you drop, oh, the big steps up, lay. Like, it was just it was just so fun to watch him go to work. I thought my, my favorite part of that, that entire battle was DeJounte on one end doing something, whether it was a pull-up three or make, making a mid-range or whatever the case was, and then Garland on the other end just throughout the fourth. Like, I just enjoyed that. I enjoy watching guards go to work, and that's what they did. But in terms of who I want to build build around, man, oh, I, want to, I want to lean DG, right? I want to lean Darius Garland, and I really do. I think I'm going to go there. But DeJounte's <laughs> so talented too, man. Like I mentioned, if you're a hoops fan – you gotta love guards. You like to, you love to see guards go to work. There's so many good ones these days, and I mean you're you're in a good spot regardless, bro. So that's what I gotta say. I hope the Spurs fans don't kill me for that, but <laughs> ah, I think that's where I'm landing at. And I won't let myself get away with this one either. I'll give an answer too. So for me, I think it's probably Darius Garland by like a thin margin. I don't actually believe you could build around either of these guys and have a championship contender. Like they cannot be the best player on a championship team. But I think if one of them had the potential to be that guy, I think it's probably Darius Garland. I mean, he's not significantly younger than DeJounte. It's not like he's 19 and DeJounte is like 30 or something like that. But DeJounte's about to be 26 in the next year. Darius Garland's only 22 years old, and he's already this polished as a 22-year-old. I mean, he's got everything in his bag. The ball's on a string. He's got a mid-range game. 
He's got that pull-up three off the dribble. He's got some bag. I mean, he's got a bag. He's got a deep bag of moves. I mean, he can do it all. So I really like Darius Garland. I'd be more confident in seeing what he can do, you know, in, in two, three years. Who is he? Because for me, I know it's not necessarily a one-for-one, one, but what does he look like when he's 26 versus what is DeJounte this year? Because I think it's pretty close between the two of them. Obviously, DeJounte's the better defender, but I think Darius Garland can be one of those sort of maybe not transcendent offensive talents, but he's kind of on the borderline of getting there. Like, he's really close to getting there. He's a fantastic facilitator. He's got every pass in the book. He's got great court vision awareness. He doesn't turn the ball over that much. So I'd probably go with Darius Garland, but I see that there's an argument for DeJounte Murray. That dude deserves his props. Even if he's not going to make the all-star game, like Greg Popovich has said numerous times, like, right, the Spurs are not going to get an all-star if they're losing. I think that he deserves as much, if not more, all-star recognition than Darius Garland. And it's, and it's a close matchup. But we can also talk about something else that was a bit less exciting. Yaka Pertle went scoreless for the first time this season. And maybe, I don't want to say his career, because there were times in, in Toronto where he didn't play that many minutes. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't go scoreless like in his first season or two. But scoreless for the first time this season, despite playing 33 minutes. And I kind of felt like it was mostly because of Mobley and Allen, one of the best rim-protecting duos, one of the best front-court tandems in the NBA. And I think it's kind of surprised some people. So let's talk about how good that duo was. And let's also talk about, you know, Yaka Pertle struggling in that game because that's tough, playing 33 minutes and not getting a single point. Uh, that's that's really tough. Yeah, starting with Yaka, I think this is the – this like matchups like these is where you're really looking at it, especially after the game, and you're like – if he had just some sort of of a fluid or or just a just a box of, of moves to go to as on the offensive end, you know maybe that would actually help him out a bit, and maybe some you know he would be a, a different player. You'd look at him differently, right? But when you're when he's playing against guys like this, especially Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, who that's that's one of my favorite front courts in the NBA right now. They're they're they mesh so well together. And typically, when you think of like these these front court duos, it's like a Sabonis and Turner or a Porzingis and and Kleba or, or or Porzingis and Powell stuff like that. They mesh so well. I think they mesh better than all those you know the the other two that I just mentioned. They they just fit so well together. You got a guy like Jared Allen who can you know is a rim runner, really good rim protector, good rebounder, good finisher. Then you have Evan Mobley who can, in my opinion, do it at all three levels. Uh, I thought that dude was. I was telling everyone, yeah, get get his a Hall of Fame speech ready. I, I think Evan Mobley is going to be a Hall of Famer, <laughs> and and I I think both both players are so good on on in in their own way, especially on the offensive end because they're pretty different. But defensively, that's where I'm like, wow, like they can be special. And if Cleveland can add you know one more piece, they can be a really interesting team, man. Very very interesting. So. Jakob, I think as his game offensively, you really want him to progress and grow. I remember pre-draft, you know, there were some there were some clips I saw where you know he could put the ball on the floor a little bit or or shoot from three, but that's just not happening in the NBA, man. So uh, it was a rough night for him. But man, how good are Evan Mobley and Jared Allen? You know? Yeah, and I want to talk about Evan Mobley for a little bit longer because he really deserves some respect. There's not very many big guys who can guard out on the perimeter and do it really well. You think of guys who fit that bill. You think of Anthony Davis, you think of uh, Bam Adebayo, you think of guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? And he's in that category too. Not only is he going to swat your shot at the rim, but he's going to lock you down on the perimeter. He is a really special player, and 
I'm not saying he is the second coming of Tim Duncan or anything like that. Obviously, there's only one Tim Duncan. But I think this situation is kind of comparable to when the Spurs had David Robinson. They got injured, got that top pick, and then now you got one of the best front court duos of all time, maybe. And I'm not saying that Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are like the best you know, front court duo of all time. They're not going to be that. But it's a similar situation where you got these two guys who Jared Allen does deserve all-star recognition. He's arguably been their best player this season. And you got Evan Mobley, who probably should win Rookie of the Year this season, if we're being honest. You know, he's, he's helping anchor the third-best defense in the NBA. The Cavs have a winning record, and they're on pace to go to the playoffs without LeBron for the first time since 1992. Like, this is a really big deal. So, really love both of those guys. Thought that they did a really good job guarding Pirtle. They bothered him. You know, he loves that little float game. He loves to get those little finesse finishes at the rim, and they just weren't letting him have it. And, you know, that's tough when you got two guys trying to stop you. The Spurs don't really have a lot of front court depth, so tough game for Yaka, but we know he went on to improve, and I think that's all that really matters. Now, this was also one of their first games back at almost full strength, and I wanted to talk about their three-point shooting. We talked about it in the Thunder game, where a bunch of players combined together, and, and, and they knocked down a bunch of threes, did it really efficiently, and we saw it in this game, too. You know, the Spurs ended up losing, but they had Keldon, Devin, Doug, and Bryn combined to go 13 of 24 from three, and for me... I think that the Spurs had added guys like Bryn, Doug McDermott, Jock Landell. Like they added these guys with the idea that they were going to be a better three-point shooting team. Pop talked about it during media day, how he wants them to shoot more threes. And we didn't really see that most of the season, whether that be injuries or COVID protocol. But now that this team is starting to be pieced back together, you can see that three-point shooting. And of course, we'll talk about Bryn later because he's gone. He's not here. We'll talk about that later. But the three-point shooting from this team has looked pretty good over the last week, even though they only went two and three. Yeah, I, and man, I swear. So I don't know. I don't know if we mentioned it already, but we already had like a, a really good podcast already done right before the Bryn news. And Noah, <laughs> how many times did I say I'm kind of worried if they lose Bryn, what are they going to look like as a shooting team? And I think really like, especially for this game, but in general, like you can tell when they're hidden from three, even against Oklahoma City, which we know is, you know, not a very good team. But even in games when they're hitting from beyond the arc, they're different, man. I mean, they really are. If they can kind of tie some things together on the defensive end, again, there's plenty of times a season where you kind of go like, man, what could they look like with another piece, with, with that centerpiece? What, what are they going to look like? And I think this game was one where when they're, when they're you know, hitting from beyond the arc, it's kind of like you, you kind of step back and say, hey, Okay, now we're excited. Now we're now we can maybe work with something here. Now we can kind of you know we have we have some good expectations for what the team looks like at their peak play, and I I I was really encouraged by that. Obviously, you know the shooting stuff didn't didn't fully translate yet, but I think you know without Bryn now we're gonna have a lot of questions which we'll get to later. But yeah, man, I I was really impressed, and I've been impressed kind of you know throughout the season where they're shooting because they are at thirty five point four percent for the year, but I think you live with that. I, I for right now I think you live with that. Yeah, their volume is low, but their three-point percentage is sort of middle of the pack. So I think they're okay, and now that everybody's getting healthy, you can so sort of see that sharp shooting from Doug and Devin and Jock, and you know, hopefully Lonnie joins that group. I don't know. He's been tough, and we don't have to talk about him today because we talked about him a lot last time. So we can keep things moving. We'll talk about how San Antonio's really opener, I guess tone setter for this week, was their loss to the Houston Rockets, and that was one of those embarrassing losses that, you shouldn't really lose to that team regardless of who was there, right? I mean, I know that they have the second overall pick in a guy like Jalen Green. They have KPG or KPJ. Uh, they have uh, Eric Gordon, who's a solid veteran. They have even uh, Christian Wood, who's you know pretty good front court piece. But 
they're bad. They're really, really, really bad. Like, you shouldn't lose to them bad. So this was a game they didn't have any business losing, but what went wrong for the Silver and Black? I mean, it just felt like from the beginning things went off the rails. So, I don't know. Did this game really even tell us anything that we didn't know about this team, or is this one that you just don't read into and you, you put it behind you and you don't ever talk about it again? Man, I, I think going back to what I said about the Clippers, how that Clippers game was kind of like just like a like a, a description, right? Of the, One game description of how the seasons went, right? Up, down, up, down, up, down. And I think here against Houston, you know, Houston, you know, enters the game fourth lowest offensive rating in the league, right? The Spurs allow them to shoot basically 55% from the field, 128 points. And quite frankly, they deserve to lose that game. I mean, because Houston, Houston, like you mentioned, fourth lowest offensive rating, the, 55% from the floor, like that, that's like 2K stuff. And it was just, I just, you didn't see it coming. Not only that too, the Spurs, they put up 124 points, but they're shooting below league, uh, below uh, league average from the field against the worst defense in the NBA. It was just, it was as low of a low as you can get from this year. And I don't know if we can necessarily take something away from it, but it's kind of like what we already knew because this team is just so up and down. You've grown to get used to performances like these where they come out either really flat or either really high or really low. They play against the Pistons, they lose. They play against, you know, Brooklyn, they're they're one shot away from from beating them. You know what I mean? So I think this was kind of just what we've came, come to expect. And it was it was a bad loss, don't get me wrong. But it seems like with these young teams, man, you have to expect something like this. A performance like this, you know, once a month, it seems like, man. And I think the best expectation is to have no expectations. That's what I've tried so hard to do all season is, look, this is sort of a retooling, rebuilding year, figuring out what you got in these young guys. You know, is DeJounte that dude? Can Derek White be his backcourt partner? Is Yaka Pirtle the starting center? Is Devin Vassell a centerpiece? Is Josh Primo, you know, a, a guy who you can develop on ball in the G League and move to the NBA? Like, this is a year to figure things out. So I don't have a lot of expectations. But my one expectation is you beat a team that's this bad. Right, they've beat teams that are this bad before. They beat the Magic, they've beat the Kings, they've beat other bad teams. So it just felt like they should have put this one away, and they'll get a chance to 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 see this Rockets team pretty soon here. But most of all, from this matchup, it just sort of felt like they wasted a really nice night from Dejounte. You know, he had 32 points, which was a career high. 10 rebounds, 11 assists. He knocked down some late three pointers that made the game look closer than it probably actually was. Gave them some hope at the end, but. Just felt like they wasted that game. And I'm not saying DeJounte isn't responsible for that in some way that they ended up losing because he did put them in a position to win, right, with those threes that they could potentially win. But he also went four for seven from the free throw line, missed two late free throws. So some of it's on him, but I would mostly say it's his teammates on that night because he did everything he could. Yeah, 100%. And what's kind of interesting is looking back at this game, it kind of set the tone from his first pull-up three-point shooting. You know what I mean? He, what he, had, he had a couple pull-up threes uh, late in this game. And then last night against OKC, he hits one. Uh, it's it's kind of like, I, in my head, I'm kind of thinking, did we see the start of something potentially? Am, am I crazy? No, am I am I am I am I tripping? Am I looking into this? Could it be? No, no, you're not. So I actually have the numbers pulled up in front of me because I was hoping you would say something about this. We were either going to get this when we were talking about Dejounte Murray's Player of the Week campaign here, or we we're going to talk about it now. So we can talk about it right now. So looking at Dejounte Murray's pull up three point attempt since this Houston game, this is where it all started for him, really. He only has 17 attempts, which is pretty low volume for five games. That's about, you know, three a game. It's not bad, but it certainly isn't high volume like guys like Luka or guys like Damian Lillard or Steph Curry. Like, those guys are the kings of the three-pointer. DeJounte is sort of just getting his name in there. But you look at guys who took at least three three-point attempts off the dribble since this game. 
DeJounte Murray was the fourth most accurate pull-up three-point shooter. 41.2% on 17 attempts. Like, that's ahead of guys like Trey Young, Anthony Edwards, LeBron James, James Harden, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown, Devin Booker, Cole Anthony, Jason Tatum, Luka Doncic. Like, that was a better percentage than all of them. Granted, they all shot a higher volume. But DeJounte Murray may have started turning a corner because really every game since that game against the Houston Rockets, he's knocked down at least one pull-up three. And I'm not saying that he's going to become this insane pull-up three-point shooter, but that's also one of the next progressions for his offensive package is being able to knock that down. He had one in that game that we talked about to begin the night against the Thunder, right? But he ended up finishing one to six and one to four on pull-ups. So it's not like he's been lights out on super high volume, but this is a good step in the right direction. So kudos to DeJounte. Hopefully he can sustain this. If not, maybe this just gives him the confidence to start pulling up more. Oh yeah, and I agree with you too. This is a huge step in his, you know, in his development as an offensive player, being a, le- a threat at all three levels, especially as a pull-up shooter. Man, that can do a lot for you, a lot for an offense. And that's one thing that I mentioned too coming into the year. That was kind of one thing I was worried about was kind of just offen- the offensive side of the ball. I-, I could see how they could be a little bit just stagnant, a little stale. But if if Dejounte has that in the bag, if that's starting to come, man, that's gonna be that's gonna make the Spurs team really interesting, uh, you know, going forward. Definitely. He's got to get more consistent with it. The volume probably has to go up for defenses to start respecting him and closing in on him, you know, the second he gets past the half court line. But again, a nice step in the right direction. You got to make progress somehow. You got to start somewhere. So for DeJounte, that's a good starting point. And speaking of starting points, we saw Zach Collins get assigned to the Austin Spurs on Sunday. He suited up against the Rio Grande Valley Vipers on Monday night. It wasn't the best performance, but let's go ahead and look at it. So how would you assess your expectations for Zach Collins and and maybe did he live up to that in his first game back so let's let's talk about that so he looked like someone who hasn't played basketball a professional basketball in a very long time and that is that's not you know disrespectful or anything like that it's just kind of calling a spade a spade you know he hasn't played hoops in a very long time and he looked like it I mean he was a team worst uh you know minus 24 out there you know he committed two turnovers had two fouls you know oh three from beyond the arc uh one rebound eight points like he looked like a guy that just hasn't played hoops, man. So, and, and in my expectations, I believe everyone's expectations should be, like you mentioned earlier with the Spurs in general, none. Don't have any expectations. I wouldn't expect Zach Collins to play very much this year, and if it is, it's in a very small role. Uh, and I think if if we start there, anything that we get above that, we should be, you know, as, as, as viewers, as watchers, we should be happy with and say, hey, that's actually good progress because, yeah, he looked like a guy who hasn't played hoops. And, and quite frankly, like, this isn't, you know, LeBron James at center we're talking about here. This is, you know, Zach Collins, a guy who's, you know, a rotational, you know, off-the-bench big man. And we should expect, you know, an off-the-bench big man who's coming off of, a you know, a couple of major injuries to kind of look like this. So that's kind of – those are my takeaways. It may sound like a little harsh, but I just think it's reality. You know, I think sometimes some people have way too high expectations for players that just aren't there, right? They're not there yet, or they're just not there at all. So that's kind of my takeaway from it, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. I think that's completely fair. I mean, you look at Zach Collins. He hasn't played a basketball game since August 13th, 2020. So it's not two years, but it's kind of closing in on one and a half years. And that's a long time to go without playing basketball. You know, you see guys like Clay Thompson come back or Paul George come back. Like they come back and they hit the ground running to a certain extent. And that's to be expected. They were at the top of their game. They're all-stars. They're superstars. They think the game differently. They see the game differently. They have a different level of, of basketball that they are playing than the average player. And as far as I'm concerned, 
Zach Collins is sort of before these injuries, before the three procedures in, in 10 months, he was just an average basketball player. You know, he wasn't like bad. He wasn't exceptional. He just sort of was a guy who hadn't quite reached his potential. And there's some things that you want to see from him, like three point shooting and rim protecting and potentially being able to guard on the perimeter to an extent. But those were things that were not solidified before he went down. Those were things that we hoped for, or, or rather that Portland fans hoped for before he went down. So for me, there really shouldn't be too many expectations for Zach Collins. I know that we talked about him being a three-point shooter, but you look at it, almost 37% on less than two attempts per game in 11 games. That's way too small of a sample size to say, you know, this guy's a good three-point shooter. Before that, it was 31% on 1.7 attempts, 33% on 1.66 attempts. So that's below league average. You look at his rim-protecting numbers. Uh, it was in the bottom 20th percentile in terms of block percentage for centers in the league during his first two seasons. And to me, I just don't know that we can say, hey, this guy is going to be this or that. Like, we're just going to have to see how the Spurs can mold this guy because I think he's still relatively raw. He's still that ball of clay. And there's time, right? He's only 24 years old, but we can't expect him to hit the ground running, be ready to play right away because even though he told us, you know, my body feels fine, the ankle wasn't a problem, I felt good in the second half, we don't know if that's 100% the truth, right? What, what is he going to tell us? Like, oh, man, no, no, I felt really bad out there. He's not going to say that, and he's going to need time. I know he's eager to come back, and he told us also that, you know, we got two games here in Austin. I'm going to play tonight. I'm going to play on Friday. Then we're going to get back together, and I'm going to be with the Spurs. But Coach Pop told us he doesn't know what the timetable is for Zach Collins and the Austin Spurs. So for me, that just signals don't have expectations. Just take it, you know, slowly. Take it slowly. Be patient. Yeah, and I think overall, even when you look at his numbers, right, a lot of his numbers, you have to go back to 2018, 2019, where he actually qualifies. And the one thing that he does a lot of, statistically, in terms of like his play-by-play -play stuff, is pass out of the post. That's like the one thing that you can say, okay, he does that a lot. Out of his two post-ups per game, uh, I believe it was pass percentage was about 30.5%. So that's like the one thing he does a lot of. But even like when it comes comes to like defending the role man, well, his last for, like full season that he played that, you know, he had a lot of substance to, he was only asked to do that at a 7% frequency. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't asked to do that a lot. Transi his transition numbers, I believe, didn't qualify that for that year either. So he, it, it's really hard to, to kind of gauge, you know, where he's at, where he should be at, or how he's going to contribute when, like we've mentioned, he hasn't played hoops in so long. And even when he has, like I, me like I mentioned earlier, I've said it like 100 times this episode, but <laughs> like I said, this isn't the LeBron James of centers we're talking about here. Like, Let's kind of calm down. Let's ease into it. And what he gives you outside of, you know, being a player that hasn't played in, in a year and a half, you should be happy with. Definitely. And the last thing I want to hit on for Zach Collins, because I really am not trying to bash him or, or anything like that. I'm just trying to be honest with my assessment of what I saw in his first game in more than a year was he was the tallest guy out there. You know, he's six foot 11. He's got a good frame. He was relatively mobile beforehand. And to me, when you have a guy like Trey Mitchell, who most fans probably don't know, he's a G-leaguer. He's kind of like one of those G-leaguers for life. Like he's either going to play in EuroLeague or he's going to be in the G-league trying to get to the NBA, but probably not making it. 6'6", that was the guy who was who was matched up to him for most of the first half. At a certain point, they moved Trey Mitchell onto Devontae Kaycock. They brought Usman Garuba, who's just a little taller, 6'8". He couldn't move either guy in the post. He didn't look that confident trying to make moves in the post against them. It looked like he got a shot blocked a couple of times, though the official stat sheet said he didn't get blocked once. But, man, it just it wasn't pretty. So I think we just got to give this guy time. And for me, I know that he wants to get back quickly, but 
if he spends the rest of the G League season with the Austin Spurs, just rebuilding confidence, learning how to just see the game again, get comfortable in the flow of a game, I'm fine with that. You know, there's no need to rush him into the rotation because his contract is a pretty friendly contract. He's a young guy, and the Spurs aren't competing for anything this season. You know, and I know that might make some fans upset, but that's just the truth. Yeah, and I think a move that really showed that was what we can get into next, my guy Bryn Forbes, right? Everyone's favorite player. You know what I mean? Bryn Forbes got moved. He got traded to the Nuggets on Tuesday night. Man, no, what were your thoughts on the deal, and what does this mean for San Antonio's 2021 lottery pick? I, at first, I really did think that that signaled that Josh Primo is coming back to the NBA. You know, he's going to get a role, or he's going to have a chance to compete for a role with Lonnie Walker and Devin Vassell and Trey Jones, but... When Popovich was asked after this last game, right after the trade was finalized, he said that this trade was not done with Josh Primo in mind, that he's going to be spending a lot of time in the G League getting some seasoning. So when I look at it from that perspective, I think, well, then they must have just done this deal as a favor, right? You look at the Boston Celtics, they're no longer over the luxury tax line, so they're going to be saving some money. You did them a favor. And this is also a guy that if you cut by June 30th, 2022, you don't owe him that $7 million salary next year. He only played 18 games for the Celtics, 5.3 minutes per game, 1.1 points per game. He wasn't a factor for them. He only played in garbage time. He shot 18.7% from the field. Like, he wasn't a factor for them. And they were trying to compete for something, right? I mean, they may not be a contender, but they're trying to get into the playoffs. They have Jalen Brown. They have Jason Tatum, Dennis Schroeder, Al Horford, Robert Williams. Like, they have the pieces to try to be competitive to get into the playoffs. And he wasn't part of their plan. And so when I look at that, Thaddeus Young hasn't been part of our plan, right? They haven't. He hasn't been part of the Spurs plan. He's probably going to get traded. I wouldn't be surprised if this guy, Juancho Hernan Gomez, doesn't play a single minute for the Spurs. Maybe if there's a COVID outbreak again and knock on wood, hopefully that does not happen. Or if there's an injury, knock on wood for that as well. Or if it's a blowout and they just say, hey, you know, go get you some cardio. But, like, I just can't <laughs> see it any other way. I just don't see Hernan Gomez getting in the game for the Spurs. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that really kind of stuck out to me too was, like, I was so I mentioned earlier, like uh, on the podcast, how I talked about Bryn Forbes on the previous show before he was moved. I was like, man, if they do move <laughs> Bryn Forbes, I think I'm a little worried about how the Spurs shooting is going to look because Bryn Forbes had a really solid year shooting uh, from three this year, you know. And I, I think, I, like I like I said again, you know, the Spurs offense, especially as a shoot as a shooting team, uh, you're going to take it right now. You know, they're shooting 35.4 percent, you know, from deep this year. But you're losing a guy who not only can shoot it very efficiently on high volume, but overall, man, he has actual gravity as a shooter off the ball. Like, so I thought maybe, you know, this could hurt the Spurs a little bit. In terms of Hernan Gomez, I agree, man. I don't see him playing very much, if at all. I, I just don't, I just don't, I just don't, under, I wouldn't, I'd be shocked. Like, if they're not giving Thad Young minutes, who I understand he's an older guy, you know, this, that, and third, but if they're not giving someone who can actually, like, for sure contribute and has a really strong track record, especially recently, of being able to contribute with other teams, I don't think they're going to play Hernan Gomez, in my opinion. You look like you want to say something. So, yeah, you could uh, lob in here. I just feel like this is a guy who's on his fourth team in less than a year, right? He was with the Timberwolves. He was also with the Celtics. I think people forgot, but during the offseason, he got traded to the Memphis Grizzlies. So this is now his fourth team in the San Antonio Spurs in less than a year. Typically, guys who have that many different jerseys in their closet in that span, like, you're probably not an NBA player. I mean, there's a few exceptions here or there, but I don't think he's a guy who's anything but injury insurance, depth insurance. Like, he's just not someone who's going to play. Now, one of the things I did think was sort of weird about this deal, and I was looking at it, and once it got finalized, is the Spurs got cash considerations, which is normal. That happens in the NBA. 
but the Denver Nuggets put a top three protection on their 2028 second rounder. <laughs> like, isn't that so weird? I, I, maybe that happens more than I realize, but I've never it's seen a, it. It's a second rounder, and it's only 2022. So in six years, you're thinking about protecting it. And that's very specific, like top three protected. So just that was just so weird to me. I've yeah, no, I, I've never seen that before. <laughs> I really don't think I have. And that's why whenever I saw it, I was like, I was like, hold up, top three protect wait, what? <laughs> I had to like wipe my eyes was like, really? Like oh, okay. Like <laughs> you know, I don't think you know, again, who had that on their bingo card, right? Like what what in the world? But yeah, I, I think I think overall we're gonna you know we saw it on on Wednesday night. You know, Brent Forbes didn't look like he was missed very much, right? Because the Spurs, you know, did pretty well from three. But uh, I think you know as they play, you know, Brooklyn and even on this upcoming rodeo road trip, I would love to see maybe if they do miss Brent a little bit. You know, I'm, he's not a world beater. He's not you know the Spurs best player, but he's a rotational you know uh, a rotational guard that can really you know shoot it from deep and maybe San Antonio will feel the effects from that. But we'll see. Yeah, it's yet to be seen. I mean, he really was huge for them. He was maybe their second-best three-point shooter outside of Doug McDermott. You could argue the best three-point shooter, really. I mean, because he's a career 40% above 40% three-point shooter. Of all active players, he's ninth all-time in active players in three-point percentage. So they could feel the effects of that, especially for a team that doesn't shoot a high volume of threes. I know that you know Lonnie can be inconsistent. Devin has made strides but can be inconsistent where we saw him you know, make four or five, and then the other night he went 0 of 6. So... We'll see what happens there, but man, I, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. The only thing I can think of is, well, the, the plan may be for Josh Primo to be in the G League for now. Once that all-star break happens, once the G League season is over, it for sure clears up minutes for Josh Primo, right? Because to me at that point, if you're just sitting them on the bench and, and depending on where they are on the standings, I still expect them to be fully at least 10 games under 500 by the time we reach that point just doesn't make sense to not play Josh Primo at that point. But we can move on. We don't have to stick about uh, around with this topic for too, too much longer. One of the things that I also wanted to talk about today was DeJounte Murray. Last week, he was nominated for Western Conference Player of the Week. He posted 26 points, 8.8 rebounds, 8.3 assists per game over that four-game stretch. And I just thought it was so impressive. So what did you think about that stretch from DeJounte Murray? Because I just thought he was incredible. I think the, the offensive end of the floor, man. I think offensively is is what I've what I've kind of talked about so much when it comes to Don, uh, Dejounte and what I want to see from him as a as a developmental player, kind of just as that kind of that guard that takes the next step. I really wanted to see what he can do, and uh, it, it was really everything that he showed all of that week was just was fantastic work. Whether it's at the rim, finishing at the rim, you know, converting some floaters, you know, knocking down some uh, mid range jumpers, the occasional pull up three. Everything looked really, really just confident. Really, it flowed very well for him. And I mean, even even last night against you know the the Oklahoma City Thunder, we saw that again. It was still there. You know what I mean? So it really looks like he's starting to turn a corner and really start to build some momentum. And that's so important for this young team because uh, you know they're five and eleven after wins this year, and they don't really have many players or, or just as a team the ability it seems to really build off of you know strong performances. And it seems like this guy's really starting to take initiative and really set the tone. Uh, culture and coaching I mentioned it all the time as being so important and it seems like he's starting to set the culture and pop is you know over there setting the coaching and I think eventually it could maybe turn into something like that's kind of the point I'm at right now is with how much DeJounte has been improving and how good he looks you know maybe I did undersell him a little bit on, on what he can or, or what he is even right now so it was a very impressive stretch Noah in my opinion 
I think the the pull up three stuff was really getting me excited. I'm not gonna lie, but yeah, that's just kind of what I took from him, man. Is just offensively, he looks he looks so so much better, so much more improved, man. And the fact that he did all this pretty much immediately after coming off a 10-day stint in health and safety protocols, I think is just a testament to him staying prepared, hungry, just ready to go despite some unfortunate circumstances for the team. Because even though he came off health and safety protocols, there was a litany of guys who were still in health and safety protocols. He put the team on his back. He said, you know, I may have not played in 10 days, but I'm going to come out here. I'm going to ball. I'm going to put all this responsibility on my shoulders. And he lived up to pretty much everything you could expect for a guy and more who was in health and safety protocols. I mean, that's huge. Most of the guys are coming off like they're not doing this well from the get-go. So shout out to DeJounte for doing so well over this stretch. And it also kind of makes me wonder how much better and more impactful he might be once the Spurs get a true centerpiece. Because DeJounte Murray has been very good. Don't get me wrong, but for the season, he's still below average league efficiency from mid-range. He's been really good at the rim, but his floater game has been about league average. His efficiency has been about league average. He's not a good three-point shooter according to the numbers right now, even if he's trending in the right direction. So I just feel like if you made him have less responsibilities, you had a guy who could be the partner in crime and could be that go-to guy, it would just make his life easier. It would make him look more effective. It would make him more efficient. It would make everything so much better for him. So I don't know how they find that guy, whether through you know free agency, whether it's a trade, probably through the draft. Uh, we and, and we can talk about the draft another day. But man, how good would he look next to a guy like Jabari Smith? Like I'm not saying Jabari Smith is that guy who is going to come in here and be your franchise savior, but the Spurs absolutely need that six eight, six nine, six ten, you know, forward slash wing hybrid sort of guy who can guard bigger guys, can guard guards, can shoot the three, can create his own offense a little bit, and. Jabari Smith sort of lives up to that bill, but we'll see. I don't know if the Spurs are going to be in that range. Maybe the lottery gods are in their favor, but man, I just can't wait to see the day that the Spurs have a true contender in place because it feels like, you know, it feels like they're far away, but at the same time, they're really just maybe one or two big pieces away. Yeah, and that's the thing that uh, we were talking about too was just, man, they put together performances sometimes that really make you wonder, really make you think like, what if they did have that guy? And if it is a Jabari Smith, we've talked about it before on other podcasts, how important it is to have versatility from the three or the four. If you're not going to really get it at the five, from the three and the four, it's even more important, right? And if they do get a Jabari Smith or, or Paolo or, or whomever, right, if they can get a, a player that, that's an ascending talent alongside DeJounte, who looks like he's getting better and better with you know every season, every week, man, San Antonio could be cooking with, with, with some oil here, man. I mean, who knows? But... I think overall, DeJounte Murray, like I mentioned, setting the tone, really improving, and whew, he puts together another week like that. He might he might get another nomination. We'll see. For sure, and, and, and I think right now his partner in crime would probably be Derek White. Like, that's probably the second best player on this team. So we look at, you know, all these players who were missing for the Spurs, whether it was DeJounte, they went 1-4 and four without him, they went 3-5 and five without Jakob, but they went 0-5 oh without Derek White. So, you know, let's talk about how important Derek is to this team, and I hate to ask this question because I love Derek, but is he realistically part of this roster in the next two years? I think if San Antonio gets that piece we were just talking about, he will be. So if they get, if, if let's say hypothetically, right, just everyone, if you're listening in your car, just think, right, think out loud. They get Jabari Smith, right, and he's really good and he fits really well. I think they would keep Derek White because I think that would make the Spurs a, a much better team. They'd be a playoff contending team. So I think, yes, he would be. Now, if they don't get that piece, 
then I could see him being moved because he just doesn't fit in terms of age. The Spurs might want to just do right by him and maybe give him a chance to compete uh, while he's you know still in his prime, you know, this, that, and the third. So I could see that as well. But just in terms of Derek's importance, I think he does so many things that kind of don't really – you don't look at it at the box score, the regular box score, and see what he does, right? So he's like first in blocks, second in shots contested, second in charges drawn, 13th in loose ball recovered among all guards this season. Like, it's the stuff that you don't really see, right? It's like as a quarterback, he's really good in the short and intermediate passing game. The stuff that doesn't really get talked about much, right? Everyone loves the deep ball, but no one cares about the other two levels. That's what Derek does, right? And, yeah, I think he, he is very important. And uh, if San Antonio does get that piece, I really think they should keep Derek, right? But if they don't, I, I can also see an avenue, a, a route here where they they kind of just let him go. They cut ties. Yeah, and, and I don't know that they would move on from him this season because Pop is still here, yeah. and I think as long as Pop is here, you're going to try to be competitive, and he's obviously one of the most impactful players on this roster. Now, I just wanted to throw out one last thing before we move on to our final topic, but I just thought it was very impressive that Derek White has averaged a career-high 5.5 assists per game while lowering his turnover percentage from a year ago, even though he's seen a decrease in his usage. like that, That's not easy to do. When your usage goes down and your touches go down, but you average more assists and you and, and even with that added playmaking responsibility, lower your turnover percentage like that is very hard to do. And it just shows you that even though he's 27 years old, I'm not saying he has like another level to get to that. He's going to become Drew Holiday, but he's sort of like that Drew Holiday light where he can play defense on, on one of your best wings on the other team or best ball handlers on the other team. He's going to get blocks. He's going to get a few steals. He's going to draw charges. And then on the other end, he provides you enough offense, and he's probably realistically San Antonio's other player, only other player outside of DeJounte who can create their own shot and create for others. So just wanted to give Derek a little bit of a shout-out, but we can move on to the final topic here. So let's wrap up things by doing a quick prediction of San Antonio's next four games. Those are going to be the Brooklyn Nets. Philadelphia 76ers, Houston Rockets, and Memphis Grizzlies. How do you see those games shaking out when it's all said and done? Yeah, I have them going one and three personally. I think they'll beat the Rockets. Uh, I think they'll lose to Brooklyn, uh, lose to Philly, lose to Memphis. Uh, that Brooklyn game w- might be a little bit more interesting, though, because uh, according to the preview that I wrote earlier this morning, if the injury report stays you know, the same, uh, Brooklyn's going to be without uh, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, Paul Millsap, uh, DeAndre Bremery was uh, day-to-day. So maybe it's a little bit closer than we expect. I know it'll be Patty Mills' homecoming as well, so that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, but I think the Memphis game is the one I'm really going to keep a close eye on because if you've heard of this podcast, I just said I love watching young guards. John Moran is, is probably my favorite player to watch in the NBA. So I'm really excited to watch that game personally, Noah. I, I think that's going to be an awesome showdown. Hopefully we can get we can get a lot of uh, DeJounte and, and Jaw kind of matchups there because they're two, they're, they seem to be cut from the same cloth, very competitive. Uh, you know, they've improved every year in, in some pretty big ways. And uh, I think that's the game I'm, I'm most looking forward to. But, yeah, just to kind of wrap it up, I think they're going to lose to Brooklyn. Uh, they'll lose to Philly, beat Houston. And then Memphis is going to be a close one, but I think they'll lose as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think they're probably going to go one and three. And I love all these matchups. I know that Kevin Durant's not going to be there and Joe Harris won't be there. But James Harden and Kyrie Irving are still prime time. And the fact that we're going to get to see Kyrie Irving is exciting. I know that... You know, he, he isn't vaccinated, so he can't play at home, but he can play on the road. He can play in Texas. So we're going to get to see us some Kyrie Irving. He's one of the most entertaining players in the NBA. James Harden and him are still trying to figure things out now, now that they're sort of the one and two without Kevin Durant. But I think that's going to be a good game. Joel Embiid just dropped 50 points the other night. So that's another big game for the Spurs, a big test for Yaka Pertle. 
you know, regardless if he drops 40 on the Spurs or 30 on the Spurs, like he is just a guy who is prime time. You got to watch him. If he's on your television, you better be watching him. So that's another fun game. And even the Houston Rockets, like they gave the Spurs a run for their money. I expect the Spurs to come out and, and avenge that loss and, and really put away the Houston Rockets early and, and, and take care of business. But anything can happen. Right, anything can happen. But I'm on the same page you, with you. You said that last time too. Yeah, you said I'm, that last I'm, time. I'm on the too. same page with you that this John Morant matchup against DeJounte Murray, that's probably the most fascinating matchup. So I'm definitely not gonna miss that one. A few years ago, if you had told me that DeJounte Murray would have a matchup with John Morant and that would be the headlining matchup, I probably would have said, Yeah, right. No way. Like DeJounte is just a starting point guard in the NBA, but nothing more. And now that they're sort of Ja's on that MVP track. Now, DeJounte isn't on yeah. that track, but he is on the all-star track. And the fact that you have two guys who are this good, still very young, approaching their prime, it's it's going to be a good matchup. So super excited for that. But now that we have sort of finished all of the topics, I want to give you a chance to shout out anything that you're working on, plug any of your work, let you know all the Spurs fans know where they can find you on social media, all that good stuff. So the floor is yours. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, the first of many, I'm very, very excited so y'all can all follow me on Twitter at D.A. Bartonic. That's at D-A-B-A-R-T-O-N-E-K. Check out all my football stuff I have going on. I'll be going to the Senior Bowl next month, doing a lot of stuff there as well. Uh, you know, cover the Spurs for Pounding the Rock. And just, I do a lot of stuff, man. So just holler at me. Uh, I'll show y'all love back. And thank you so much, all, uh, all of y'all, for listening. And you can find me on Twitter at N underscore Magaro, M-A-G-A-R-O, as well as my Spurs film breakdowns on YouTube and both of our Spurs words at Pounding the Rock. And thanks again for everybody who tuned into this edition of Alamo City Limits. And for those of you listening at home, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a fantastic staff of writers over at Pounding the Rock who do an amazing job of keeping everybody up to date with their favorite team, the latest stories, and the coolest statistics. So go check our stuff out. But until next time, Spurs fans, take care.